Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I'm joined today by Gary Stocker, a legend in higher ed viability circles. Over the past five years, he's built the College Viability app, which helps college leaders, students, and their families make informed decisions about financial health of institutions. Previously, Gary was the chief of staff in the office of the president at Westminster College in Missouri. So, Gary, welcome. Sarah, always a pleasure to chat with you. So, Gary, I follow you on LinkedIn. You are very plugged into the college closure scene and 2023 has been a very busy year for private college closures. Now, that was sort of predicted at the end of the era of COVID relief money. And yet the closures, they still feel jarring to us, right? It doesn't feel good. We know that the outcomes for students are poor when a college closes. Most students don't finish their degree anywhere. They don't transfer. And so it's imperative that we examine what is behind a college closure. Gary, you're here today. You've got some research on the symptoms of financial distress and solutions for private colleges. Let's start with the leading indicators for a private college in trouble. What are they? You know, and when we look at the leading indicators and we use the data is always from iPads, we do have access to audited financial statements at some point. But we look at trends. We don't look at individual years data, and it all comes from iPads. And remember, the colleges themselves, Sarah, submit this data to iPads, to the National Center for Education Statistics. And there's three that I focus on. And the first one is not particularly profound. Most of our listening audience probably has heard of this, and it's the change in enrollment. And the one I track is a full-time equivalent enrollment. It's one of many that iPads reports. And if the case that I make that a college should be concerning both to its leaders, its faculty, its staff, its community, and its students, is if there's a if there's a downward trend. If we're looking at an individual college on the College Viability app using the iPads data, and that FTE enrollment has gone down for eight consecutive years, Sarah, that's a problem, and that's not a good problem. The second one that I look at is just the actual total. And you, you've seen this before, and I'm guessing many in your audience have as well. If a college has total enrollment, of less than a thousand students, they just don't have the depth to scale the cost across such a small number of students. And I'll tie that in here in a couple minutes as well. And then one that you really need iPads data for, and that's the tuition and fees revenue. That comes out of iPads, again, submitted by the colleges themselves. And again, I make the case, if you have a college, yours or somebody else's, whose tuition and fee revenue has gone down over the past eight years, that's what you what we use on the app, that's not good. And, and, and for any college leader, for any board person that says, well, we'll fix this next year, it's not logical. It's highly unlikely to happen that after eight years of such negative enrollment trends, negative tuition and fee revenue trends, that any college can turn it around in any reasonably short period of time. Is there one that's more critical than the others? Yeah, I, I would go with the F, with the tuition and fees. And here's why. Because that's what pays your salary. That's what pays the faculty salary, the staff salary, keeps the lights on. And, and one of the, the sad things, the not so good things about reporting colleges, and this is the time of year for that, is colleges will say our enrollment is up. Or worse, our applications are up. Well, you and I both know that applications are a click of a button that means nothing. And enrollments, Sarah, don't pay the bills. They don't help make payroll. They don't keep the lights on. It's the 
tuition and fee revenue associated with enrollment? Yeah. So you talked about enrollment, less than a thousand students, and then tuition and fees as some of the leading indicators that you really focus on to kind of show the picture of the college in trouble. What are some of the lagging indicators? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. And I don't get that one very often. And I've got three. And let's talk our way through them. And the first one's kind of sad, I'll be honest. And iPads tracks the four and the six year undergraduate graduation rates. The standards I use are 50% over after four years and 70% after six years. And Sarah, if we were to bring up the College Viability app now, and I know this is audio only, we would see an astounding number of private and public colleges whose graduation rates are significantly below 50% after four years and significantly below 70%. And again, you're asking the question, lagging indicators. If your graduation rate is run 40%, give or take over the last 10 years, you're not going to make it 90% next year. It takes a while to fix that kind of stuff. And then you've seen probably in, the, in some of the postings that I do, if a college can't graduate 50% of its undergraduate students in four years, Sarah, it's not even a coin toss college. You can't even toss the coin in the air and you can get better odds tossing a coin in the air to graduate than actually going to some of these colleges. The second one is really an inside baseball kind of stat that's lagging. I want to talk about that. And it's associated with tuition, uh, with tuition and fees. And it's something called unfunded institutional grants. You and I call that merit aid. We call that scholarships, presidential scholarships, Sarah scholarships, whatever they are. But it's unfunded. It's the same kind of discount, Sarah, you and I get when we buy a car or buy a house or buy clothes or food, whatever the case may be. It's revenue that a college foregoes to entice a student financially to enroll and pay something to go to that college rather than nothing. And again, when we look at the data, and I use the, the 2023 version of the College Viability app, you can see colleges clearly trying to remain competitive because their unfunded tuition discounts, for example, I'll make up the numbers, go from 5 million in 2014 to 15 million in, in 2021. That means they're giving up $15 million eight years later when they only gave up $5 million earlier. And they're doing that to get students to enroll. And, and the worst case, best case, I'm not trying to do this. We all know that Iowa Wesleyan closed earlier this year. And when I do research of recently closed colleges, and I've got a version of the app that does that, every single college in that list had enrollment declines, except Iowa Wesleyan. And it closed because when you go back and again, inside baseball kind of thing, and look at their unfunded grants, it had doubled or tripled. They were giving away the store to get students to enroll. So what I'm hearing you say is enrollment by itself isn't as big of an indicator of trouble as enrollment plus the unfunded grants. So if your enrollment's steady or even growing, you still need to check into how much unfunded institutional grants are being given away. Otherwise, you don't have the full picture because you could, sure, you can enroll anyone and pay them to be there. But if at the end of the day, you're still losing money, you're actually losing more money on having them there. I mean, so I guess that's what I'm hearing you say, right? Those two have to go together. They do. And, and it's a big picture. And you're going to hear me use materially significant net many times as we go forward today. If you're not getting materially significant revenue, net revenue from any source, and we're talking about tuition now, you can't get it done in this day and age. And I want to add, Sarah, one more lagging indicator. And this is a more common one, and it's endowment. And again, I have the Gary Stocker threshold. If, you, if your college, no matter its size, public or private, doesn't have a minimum of a 50 million, 50 million endowment, I make the case that 
it can't be relied on to save you when you're in trouble. Because as we all know, most colleges have been around decades, if not centuries. And if you're in Dallin in 2021, and that's the last reported date, is $25 million, don't tell me you can get $50 million next year because you don't have the systems and processes. You don't have the alumni willing to support your college. And if you're in trouble, I've heard many folks say this, there are very few people who want to throw good money after bad. Tell me a little bit more about that magic threshold of $50 million for endowment. Is $50 million a threshold because the 4 to 5% yield that a college can use for its operating budget, or is there some other reason that you have that $50 million? Yeah, and, yeah, and I want to be clear on that. That's a Gary Stocker number. There may be others using that. You could use your own number. And it goes to a point that I'm glad you brought this up. It's the comparison. And if Sarah University has a $125 million endowment and Gary University has a $15 million million endowment, who has got better systems and processes in place? Who has got better resources to weather the downtimes? It's Sarah University, not Gary University. I see. So you're saying it's a reflection of the potential and what's actually happening. That's another point that you're making, right? Absolutely. Other than Sarah University is clearly superior to Gary University. Well, I review that going in, Sarah, so there's no there's You're just no flattering me. Anymore. Okay. Okay. So we've got colleges. We've got these indicators that are showing a poor picture, right? Lower endowment, low graduation rates, you know, declining enrollment for eight years, tuition and fees, unfunded institutional grants. That's not going well. Okay. So what would you encourage college leaders in these scenarios to do? You know, it goes back to economics, and I'm guessing almost all of your audience took Economics 101. And one of the first things any competent economics instructor talks about is supply and demand. And it's important for these college leaders to recognize that economics apply to higher education, just like they apply to every other industry. And of course, in higher education in 2023, we have way, way, way too many college seats and not enough college behinds to fill them. You cannot fight an economic law of supply and demand by adding a course, by adding a support, by cutting back on copy paper. You can't generate the, the, the materially significant net revenue needed from those kind of changes. It is more substantial business model changes that are needed. And your audience may start throwing stuff at me when I add this next part, even though it's an audio and they can't actually see me. You got to look at consolidation. You've got to look at consolidation of courses offered, and you've got to look at consolidation associated with the business model. I'll I'll digress for a second. Stephen Covey's Seven Habits begin with the end in mind. And the end in mind here is, ladies and gentlemen, listening to Sarah Holden's podcast today, somebody will consolidate the courses that they offer across many colleges. Some will consolidate in a business model, and they'll bring 5, 10, 15, 20 colleges together. You may be shaking your head, no, Gary, that will never happen. All right, fine. It happened in other industries. It's only logical and reasonable to think it could happen in higher ed as well. The challenge is, and I will grant this, the cultures associated with merging 10 to 20 colleges ain't going to be no fun. But somebody, Sarah, is going to do it somewhere And I think sooner rather than later. I want to dig into this idea of consolidation, or sometimes we call it M&A in higher ed. I am philosophically all for that. I was part of a higher ed merger in 2012 and 13. However, if you are in a financially vulnerable position as a college, you're not very attractive to others, 
right? So is this really a reasonable pathway for colleges in trouble to get out of troubles to say, hey, we're in trouble. We're not doing so great. Here's our books. Review them. Yeah, but we really want to partner with you. Could you partner with us? I just, I'm not so sure they're attractive partners. And what's actually happening, because I have conversations with college presidents and others in the industry like you, Sarah, and what's happening now is these colleges that are closing, the Iowa Wesleyans, the Cardinal Stritches, the Paul Smiths is close to closing in New York, the Alderson Broadus mess that was last week. There, These colleges, and almost all, but not all, get to the point where their last dollar is circling the financial drain. And then the leadership with the college leadership and the board leaderships, oh gosh, we should do something. These colleges, and I'll use Cardinal Stritch and IOS then because they're close to us here in the Midwest. I know they called college presidents and they were dialing for dollars. They wanted these colleges to save them. And I know, well, at least, well, they probably all said it. I don't know of all of them. They said, no, just like you suggested, Sarah, your resources, your finances, what you bring to the table is not sufficient. So there's really two schools of thought. And again, we're going to go with the Gary Stalker schools of thought here. And the first one is sad. And I'm going to make the case that the die is already cast, Sarah, for not only the colleges that have closed, but for those who are listening to this podcast and recognizing the symptoms that you and I have talked about already and may talk about more. I don't know that they can recover. And the second school of thought is those who survive this period that we're in, which is a substantially increased rate of private college closures, realize, guys, guys, we, guys and ladies, we should do something. And they start looking at changing their business model. They start looking at scaling their operations across multiple colleges, just like other industries have done. And like I shared a minute ago, Sarah, my number is 10 to 20. Laugh at me, ridicule me, take me off your Christmas card list. It doesn't matter. Scale can only be accomplished for both cost management and net revenue enhancement by scaling operations across multiple colleges. Right or wrong, that's my operating premise. The business model you're suggesting is more than a dozen. You're saying two two kind of financially struggling schools merging together or consolidating their back office operations isn't going to get the job done. Your position is find a dozen of these and figure that out. Doesn't that sound complicated though? Well, kind of. If, if your college has already you know, got that enrollment trend is bad for eight years, the tuition and fee revenues down, the endowment is small. We didn't talk about admissions yield. We can talk about that maybe later on has gone down. I don't know that there's recovery in sight. Those that look at mergers, and you don't really acquire on private colleges because there's no cash change hands. And I use the term consolidation because mergers has a negative connotation in higher education. But those colleges will look to consolidate because they're going to recognize that colleges are closing and the ones that closed didn't have the capacity to scale on the expense side and on the revenue side. It's just logical. Does it happen next week, next month? Eh, I don't know. Does it happen next year, the year after? Almost certainly in my mind, because it makes sense and because it's happened historically across many, 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 if not most other industries. There's such an emotional component to this conversation. And so walk me through this idea of a college that's on the brink, right? It's got all the symptoms we've talked about of being financially at risk, and yet they're not doing anything other than maybe hoping, wishing, praying, calling donors. What about that role of emotion? Where for you is the line between, yeah, fight for this university. It means so much to the community, all the, the students, the faculty, all the people invested. And then where's the line of uh, this isn't 
happening to continue doing this is just putting people in a worse position, right? If we continue to spend money that we don't have, where is that line for you? And, and I'll give you an actual case. And the actual case that I'm going to reference, and Sarah, you know, I talked about this previously, is St. Joseph's College in Rensselaer, Indiana, closed in 2017. Last year, a professor at St. Joseph's wrote a book called Requiem for a College. And Sarah, that book describes in sad, in maddening, in, in, in great detail, the emotions that the faculty and staff and students went through at St. Joseph's Econic, St. Joseph College in late 2016, but mostly early 2017, when the leadership and the board of trustees decided, no mas, we can't make it. If you want to know what's going to happen to your college, Requiem for a College, Amazon, I think is an access point, tells you what's going to happen. You don't need to listen to me tell you. You can read Jonathan Nichols' story. And the, the fascinating part of the book is not just the emotional piece. Um, and it's substantial, as Sarah, I'm guessing you can imagine if that would happen to you or others. At the end of the book, the last part of the book, he goes back and he looks at what the leadership and the board of trustees did and did not do during that entire period. And one of the things that struck me, and I've got hundreds I think I outlined, was the folks at St. Joseph's thought they were too loved to close. They didn't look at the, the faculty, didn't look at the finances. They knew that, you know, that the, the plumbing leaked and there was issues with mold in the dorm rooms, you know, the common kind of maintenance things that, that most people see, but they didn't have that business sense that you got to have net revenue to make payroll. And that's what's happening in way, way, way too many colleges as we sit here in the late summer of 2023. I just got the book. I haven't had time to read it yet. I know you and I have spoken about this book, and I want to delve more into that role of college leaders and faculty and staff who are a part of these types of schools. So let's just start with the board of trustees. Let's talk about the specific role of the board of trustees when a college is financially at risk. What should they be doing? Let's just say things are the picture's already bad. What what kinds of questions should they be doing? What actions should be, they be taking? Tell us about that. It's a tough position for college leaders and the boards. They're responsible, don't get me wrong, but they're in a tough position, and here's why. They have that fiduciary responsibility. Let me define the term. Fiduciary is essentially the best interest of the organization, whether it's a college or a nonprofit or a for-profit organization, doesn't matter what it is. Leadership has a fiduciary responsibility to look out for the best interest. And so these folks are trying to do that, but what we have, and again, there's a cultural component here, is most boards of trustees are alums. They are, for the most part, successful business people in some form or fashion, but their involvement in the college is confused with operations and that fiduciary responsibility. And so they don't really have access, or either, either of their own initiative or of the college leadership providing it, to say, your enrollment's down seven years. The admission yield has gone down from 20% to 5% over the last eight years. They're not looking at that. And so when we have these sudden closures, and Mount Ida back in 2016, I think, was the epitome of sudden closures. They announced in April and closed in May, and that continues to happen now. These boards aren't aware of the trends, and they wait until something like an accrediting agency threatens them with suspension, or that's not the term, with suspension of their accreditation before they act, and then it's too late. And that's why I go back to what I shared a couple of minutes ago. I'm afraid the die is already cast for too many of these. Now, your question was, what do they do? You know, even if the die is already cast, you've got to find ways to generate materially significant net revenue. 
adding a seven person football team, adding a women's wrestling team, adding, adding degrees and majors only guarantee you startup costs, right? And to generate materially significant net revenue, have I said that yet? Materially <laughs> significant net revenue, you got to look at ways to manage the cost while driving net revenue. And if you've not done that for decades, what makes you think you can do that tomorrow? In your experience, do the boards of trustees, do they ask the right questions and demand the right types of data? In, yeah, the qualification is in my experience, no. Let me be fair, my depth of experience is not ridiculously substantial, but I asked Jonathan Nichols from Requiem of a College that question. I said, did the board do their job? He was on the screen a couple of days ago when I interviewed him and he looked at the camera and he said, no, absolutely not. Well, here's what the balancing part is. He said, Gary, it wasn't that they had bad intentions. It wasn't that they had evil intentions. They didn't know how to proceed. And I worry that's the case in too many colleges. Okay, so we talked about the boards of trustee and their role and asking the right questions at the right time. What about faculty and staff? What's their role in all of this? Should they even follow the finances of a college? Is that within their purview? You know, I'm pausing here to, to ponder the depth of this response <laughs> because you and I both know historically faculty, they teach stuff and they do a ridiculously good job of teaching stuff, whatever the content is. And they have had the assumption that their college will not change much, especially at their level for a long time. But we're now in the day and age, especially for private colleges, especially for small private colleges, and particularly especially for small rural private colleges. If I'm faculty uh, at a college that has is it meets any one of those three specs, one of those three aspects, small, rural, private, I'm calling Gary Stalker. I'm dropping Gary Stalker. No, and I know, Sarah, you're going to provide that in the text and the description here and say, send me the faculty version of the College Viability app. And, and I think I shared with you, Sarah, I'm going to send that to any faculty member after this podcast who drops me a note at the email address you'll share with me so they can see what the enrollment looks like. So they can, they can see what the tuition fees look like and the graduation rates and the admissions yields. I'm even willing to host one-on-one webinars with college faculty who are interested in presenting their leadership with data if the leadership has not done that. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate that. Yes, we will definitely make sure your contact information is in the show notes so people can reach out to you and get that very valuable information. We appreciate that. Talk a little bit about what they can do other than maybe informing themselves with the information that you can provide and maybe iPads. What can they do if they see indicators of financial distress or downward trends? What what can faculty and staff reasonably be expected to do to be a part of the solution? You know, Sarah, I get a lot of questions on these kind of events, and that's that's one of the best I've gotten in a long time because there's no history of faculty intervening on the business side in any substantial amount. And I, I would offer that if you look at the data that we can find either through iPads or the app, whatever the case may be, if all the trends are downward, you're better to have that conversation today, yesterday actually, rather than today or tomorrow as opposed to wait and hope for change. We've all heard the line about hope is not a strategy. If that's all you're doing now, John Nichols will tell you, hope was their strategy back in 2017. You've got to use the data to say, hey, we're not trending in the right direction. I'm not smart enough to say what exactly to do outside of what I've shared before. You've got to generate materially significant net revenue associated with course offerings. This is operating revenue, not necessarily endowments, although that helps, and materially significant constraints on current expenses. One of the common scenarios I've witnessed is this idea that faculty can help 
by being part of academic or even athletic or extracurricular program development, right? You take the chair of stuff, I think you called it, stuff department, and they start a new degree, the graduate online degree and stuff, right? And they think, oh, I'm helping. I am going to boost enrollment. And it's a part of our strategic plan to grow. And this will be great. What do you think about that? I know athletics programs, you mentioned that earlier. Can colleges grow their way out of financial problems in this way? No. And here's why. Because standalone courses, for the reasons we just talked about, the startup costs are guaranteed, materially significant revenue, net revenue is not. Sarah, I make the argument that it's the same business model, that fictional college you're talking about, this graduate degree and stuff. If you've always done it that way, what makes you think doing it another year will change things? The business model must change. Scale must be accomplished both on the academic side for the revenue side and on the expense side for back office, to use a generic term. That's not always the best way to describe it, just like every other industry. So new programs, whether athletics, academics, or other types of programs, you don't see as good solutions. Any other ideas for faculty, staff, other college leaders to to be a part of that solution? I know there's no easy answers, but this would be the time to share any brilliant business model, innovations, or other ideas that you might have. Well, I've never been charged with being brilliant, so we need to start. We need to start with that with that qualification. And I'm going to be consistent, and it's not going to be anything new, Sarah. So throw something at me if you would like to. I can see you on the on the screen here. <laughs> You've got to look at consolidations of large numbers. And here, I'll give you a, a different take on that. Let's take in a, a senior year accounting class, all right? And let's take 10 colleges. And each of those 10 relatively small colleges have a senior year accounting course. And each of those colleges have five students in that senior level accounting course. It doesn't pay the bill for the adjunct faculty. It doesn't pay the bill for the full-time faculty, whoever's teaching it. But if you bring those five students across 10 colleges, you can do the math on your own. Now, all of a sudden you're generating materially significant net revenue across all 10 colleges. And of course, you're allocating some of those re that revenue back to the person who's teaching it. If it's you know, Sarah University's professor, Sarah University gets compensated for paying that faculty member. But now you've got, instead of paying 10 adjunct faculty members $3,000 to teach five students, you're paying one faculty member, adjunct or otherwise, make up whatever number you want, 5,000, 7,000 to teach 50. And the scale is where you start generating that numbers. So I like that solution on paper. I think that makes a lot of common sense. I will challenge a couple points on that. I'm not sure how you would get all of those different colleges to agree to one plan of action and make it work logistically. And then the other idea is, do you sacrifice anything with the student experience by doing it this way? I think it was last week, Sarah, maybe two weeks ago, I did one of these podcasts with an organization called RISE, R-I-Z-E, -E, Education. Have you heard of them? Yeah, I listened to your webinar. Yeah, Rise Education does yeah. exactly Okay, yeah. Thank you. All right. <laughs> you're back on my Christmas card list. <laughs> so Rise Education does exactly what you're talking about. They provide it's still that residential experience. doesn't have to be, but it can be. And they've found ways to integrate. Their big contribution to value is they found a way to take the systems and processes from disparate colleges and integrate them so that at advanced level, what I say, finance or accounting class, whatever it was, from Sarah Holton University, it's billed through your university. It uses your course numbers. Everything is yours except the, the teaching is done through RISE and their online systems and processes. 
the, their book is out. I've got a copy of it here somewhere. It's called College of the Future. College of the Future. And it was written by one of the founders of Rise Education and the president at Adrian College in Michigan, I think. And and they sent it to me last week and I read the thing in about a day because it addresses all those logistical concerns, Sarah, that you have and many other faculty will have as well. But it goes back to business model. If I'm a fabulous accounting teacher and I'm full-time faculty, the culture is, you know, Sarah, don't be taking my stuff. And I understand that. You know, that's why college leaders get paid the big bucks is to manage those process changes, to manage the business model changes. And I'll go back to what I shared earlier. Somebody will. Your college can choose not to. You know, Sarah University can choose not to change. But what happens if Gary University does? The first mover is going to have the monstrous advantage in this. The second mover, much, much less. Okay, so consolidation sounds like a viable option for certain types of schools that still have a way forward by, you know, pooling together resources and, you know, working with others to make sure the logistics. What about for the colleges that you mentioned the die was cast? They don't have enough money to continue. It's just the writings on the wall. How can those colleges kind of ensure a smoothish closure? Like if you have to close, what's the ideal closure variables? What does it look like? And again, you know, you're asking some really good questions here. I don't often get these, Sarah. And I've got two words for you. Attorneys general. And we all know that endowment funds state by state are at the end of the day managed by the attorney general, attorneys general of each individual state. And let's take, for example, you know, the ones that have closed this year, I won't use names anymore, and say they had 20 or 30 million. I'll go back to St. Joseph's. They had 20 million in their endowment. And they had to petition the attorney general of the state of Indiana to access those funds to be able to pay the salary of their final paychecks. And I, I can't remember if they actually got that accomplished or not. But I know of a few number of cases where colleges have approached the attorney general for their state and said, we're in dire straits. We'd like to take some percentage of our funds or some actual amount of funds and move them from unrestricted endowments to cash. And in the cases I know about, there were some legal proceedings. The litigation wasn't particularly harsh. The attorney general eventually said, sure. And so to answer your question, I think the avenue is for colleges across the country, whether they have issues with closure, closure sometime soon or not is to start having conversations with legal counsel, start putting together conversations with the state attorney general's office and say, hey, if you don't want you know, some significant percentage of private colleges to close in our state, let's start looking at how we can leverage the endowments to help save these colleges. Now, we all know that endowments from somebody who donated 80 years ago and they're dead now, their intent was to keep Sarah University open, right? Well, I make the argument that the, the demands for Sarah University to stay open now require access to my donation from 80 years ago, even though I'm dead. And so the key is to get access to those funds. And I can't imagine how many restrictions would come out of that, probably a lot. If you're looking for a, I don't know that I would characterize it as a Hail Mary, it may be. I think the opportunity lies with the state's attorney general. Sounds very complicated, very legalistic, and probably has to be done. So I I understand that. What about for students? Is there transfer agreements that need to be put into place so that the students are more likely to transfer? Because we know that they're really not. They're opting out. They're stopping out of college versus transferring when their school closes. What do you think about transfer agreements or other ways to smooth the ride or create a safe landing for students? You know, in, in, in the colleges that I 
follow. That's why all of them that close. Most do a decent job, albeit it's late. They announce the closure and then the next day they say, by the way, we have colleges that are going to help. You know, and I've had somebody, I can't remember who it was, share with me, well, these are college ambulance chasers, right? So they're chasing these students from the colleges that are closing. I don't, maybe, maybe not, but I don't know that that's a valid complaint because for sure, these colleges that are still open want to have students come there. I'm, I'm okay with that kind of stuff. But for the students themselves, I'm if the die is already cast, I'm not sure that the struggles are going to go through are entirely avoidable. I think the key, and this is we're not even close to having this happen, is when you start looking at colleges as a 17 and 18-year-old with your family, you've got to include, is this college fight financially healthy compared to others that I am looking at? Let's bring it to the College Viability app. You had mentioned that early in the session that the Viability app helps provide information to students and their families and others. Can you get more specific on the types of information they could find and use? Sure. And the College Viability app, there are different versions, and I'll briefly talk about those, let you compare the financial health and viability of colleges. And I'll give you a couple examples. I'm in Missouri. Let's assume I want to send my child to a Missouri college because I want them to stay close to home. You know, their mother and I want them to stay close by. And so I start looking. I use the app to compare the, I think there's 25 some odd private colleges in Missouri. And I'm looking to see which ones have had positive enrollment growth, right? Some have, very few. I'm looking to see which ones had a graduation rate after four years of 50% or greater. If it's below 50%, I'm really, really, really going to look at my child and say, I don't know, sweetie pie, that's a risk. The six-year number just kind of reaffirms that. I'm going to look at the endowment. If a college hasn't raised, you know, that 50 million is my number, I worry that they don't have the capacity in the event of a crisis to raise funds from donors for whatever reason. And then the big indicator, and this is one I'll expand on a little bit right now, is something called admissions yield. And this is part of the specialized version of the app that I have for faculty. And the admissions yield by definition, I'll go inside baseball one more time, is the percentage of students accepted by a college who actually pay enrollment fees and show up. If the admission, I call it a popularity indicator. That's my term, not iPads, because it indicates how popular a college is with its accepted students. And Sarah, if that number has trended down, whatever it has been over the last five to 10 years, and again, we use eight years in the app, the market is saying, I've got better options. Now, as an individual family, as an individual student, you're welcome to choose the oddball, the college that has a low admissions yield, but you're violating what the market is telling you and others say, I've got better options and they're choosing other colleges. Beyond that, we get a lot of inside baseball stuff, the full version of a college viability app, 30 iPads reports. It has lots of you know, assets and liabilities and that kind of stuff. It's for boards, it's for college leaders, it's for CFOs. But I have versions for faculty. I have versions for students and their families, which with many fewer, because they need that information. We'll go back to that fiduciary term that we talked about a little while ago. I make the case with some emotion that the faculty, the staff, the students, the community has no fiduciary in this private college experience. And I make the case that the data that a fiduciary would provide is inside iPads and most easily obtained by using that college viability app to compare one college to another. Be your own fiduciary. Have access to that small sample of fields that we provide you that provide you the most guidance and say, you know what? (laughs) This college compares unfavorably or this college compares favorably. That's where the list should start. Not tuition, not location, not majors, not faculty. Is this college financially healthy? 
compared to others that you're considering. Let me clarify the admissions yield magic threshold. I know you've had your Gary Stocker numbers. Is admission yield 20%, 30%, 40%? What's healthy? What's unhealthy? Sarah, you got to write questions for a living because you're asking really good questions. <laughs> and, and, the, and the nuance to that is you and I know, you know, here in St. Louis, WashU, one of the top private colleges in the country, and their admission yield is 4 or 5%. That's what they want. They want a really low admission yield because they're rejective is the term used these days, but highly selective or rejective colleges. They reject a lot more students than they accept. So we can't talk about the WashU's, the Ivy League schools, the major state universities. They, they want low admission yield, but we do want to look at the comparisons for every other college. Now, I use 20%. I'm not sure I even like my own number, but 20% or less suggests that 80% of the market is making choices of other colleges. But I'm not even sure that's the best indicator. I think the trend is the best indicator. If it has gone down from whatever starting point, down for eight consecutive years, the market's telling you something. Ignore it, abide by it, but that tells you what the market is thinking about that college's offer. So if we do have any listeners, particularly families or students, looking at these numbers, that 20%, let's just pick on that number, 20%, which I would consider pretty low for a non-selective college, right? We're going to take selective colleges off the table for the moment. So if 10 students apply and are accepted, only two show up and pay and attend, that's pretty low. Two out of 10 is not great. That's numbers. correct. Yeah. Yeah. For non-selective colleges. Okay. Accepted students, not students who apply. Correct. Thank you for that clarification. It's accepted students, right? We haven't talked about scholarship. I want to make sure we touch on that. What's the role of scholarships in causing financial challenges? It goes back to that unfunded institutional grants. That is, again, part of the iPads data in the bigger versions of the College Viability app. Parents and families look at scholarships these days, and they call them merit aid. They call them scholarships. They call them presidential scholarships and smart student scholarships and those kind of things. But they're unfunded. And so what's happening is students... The market is such that one college will offer a student a $15,000 scholarship and the other will offer $12,000. And mom and dad or the student calls college too and says, well, the other one's offering me $3,000 more a year. Will you match that or do something better? And colleges say yes. And so again, they're not. there's no transfer of money on these scholarships. They are unfunded. They're just simply discounts. So with less revenue, because we go back to economics 101, too many seats, not enough students to fill those seats drives down prices, whether it's milk, eggs, or college seats, and that's what's happening. So it's important to recognize that merit aid, in almost all cases, there are exceptions, is unfunded discounts. And a sidebar story to that, I've had a college president tell me his parents would rather have higher tuition and larger scholarships so they can share with their family, friends, and relatives. Junior got a $25,000 scholarship to go to this university and yes, you can call it a scholarship, but in almost all cases, it's a discount. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. For this, from the student and family's perspective, go get them. You want that. But when we look at the other side, the college's foregoing revenue, and at what point does that impact the quality of the education, the quality of the facilities, the quality of the faculty? You can apply that logic to, you know, to cars. You know, if we discount cars too much, at some point, the car manufacturer has to cut back on the quality of the sound in the radio, the quality of the leather in the seats, the quality of the metal in the seatbelts, whatever analogy you want to come up with. That's just foregone revenue to the college. I've heard that same argument, Gary. There's almost like a pride factor in how much 
of scholarships and discounted your family member received, right? Or you personally received. It's sort of like, I'm special. I got my $25,000 scholarship. And there is, it's like, I earned it. I worked really hard to get the good test scores and the strong GPA. I was president of everything in my high school. I've earned this. So I, I can't blame people's pride in that because they've earned it and worked hard for it. But I think it ultimately has been counterproductive to where we're trying to go with transparency in pricing models and, you know, making things viable. So it's been an interest. It's an interesting argument when I hear that from people. Yeah. And, and I can't add anything more to what you said, because that's exactly right. These folks deserve it. They've earned it. The market says they can have it. God bless them. Go get it. All right. I want you to pull out your crystal ball. And I know you're a bit of a grim reaper on this college closure predictions, but I would like for you to predict within the next 12 months or so, what do you see happening? So will we continue to see smaller rural schools struggle? Do you think things will plateau and kind of we'll see a handful of closures at certain times of the years? Or do you think things will accelerate or where do you think things are going? I'm asked this question regularly. And so the response is going to be the standard one. There will continue to be closures and they will be short notice closures. Some will be expected. And I can look at the app right now and off camera, off podcast, I'll be glad to share the ones I think are highest risk. But we will continue to see short notice closures at the start of the fall term and at the end of the spring term appears to be when most of the announcements come. At the start of the fall term, it's because the tuition revenue from the loans that most colleges have, the big check comes from the federal government, is not sufficient to make payroll through December. And in March, April, when those closures come, it's because they've looked at the revenue for the entire year. They're looking at their class for the next year and realize that at some point they won't have the revenue to make payroll and keep the lights on and those kinds of things. It's going to continue to happen. The die is cast. I, I still subscribe to that. But the rest of the story is what you said, a year from now, Sarah? Is that what your question? Yeah, about a year. Short term. And then I'd love for you to also talk about five years out. I think in, in the next year, you're going to see closures. I, I don't think anything more closures like I just described. I, I As I shared with you earlier, the market is driving this. and The market is driving this like the market drives everything. There will be colleges with strong leadership and maybe less academic leadership and more business-oriented leaders that look at the type of scaled model that I've talked about. We won't see that in the next year. Those conversations may have started already. They may be starting. I don't see, I don't think we see the fruits of those conversations for something beyond the next 12 months, two years, three years, something like that. Because keep in mind, you know, if enough college colleges close, then there's some percentage of those students who will fill the empty seats in other colleges. And at some point, you'll get that economic equilibrium and the crisis will have passed. Here's the big question. And here's where you want to bring a bunch of folks together for another podcast. What happens next? What happens when this crisis passes and that equilibrium starts to come into play? The colleges say, we survived this one. Or do they start looking ahead and planning for the next scenario when the equilibrium gets out of balance for whatever reason? All right. As we're wrapping up, I would love for you to share your best advice for college leaders to operate a viable institution. Consolidate. There's no other way around it. I, I can add more words, but there's no value to that. Other industries have done it. It's time for higher education. Believe me, don't believe me, but the, at the end of the day, some will and some won't. And you have to decide as a college leader, Sarah, do you want to be part of the some will group or the some won't group? And if you choose to be part of the some won't group, are you willing to run the risks for your college if you're wrong 
by not looking to consolidate on significant scale beyond what you have done to date. Gary, you're so wise and so appreciate your honesty in sharing your information with us. I know some listeners will want to reach out to you, learn more about what you can do in terms of helping them through the College Viability app. So I'll be sure to include your contact information in our show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.